HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Hey. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Kat Johnson, and we're coming to you live from Denver, Colorado today. We are here at Slow Food Nations. It's the second annual Slow Food Nations, and um, if you're in Denver, come down and see us. We're at the corner of Larimer Street and 14th Street, right in the middle of the Taste Marketplace. We're going to be bringing you live interviews all day today until 5 p.m., and then tomorrow we'll be back here from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., so that's a little bit about what's going on today, and I'm here with Hannah Forden. Hey, Kat. It's a very hot day in Denver, and we're super excited to be here. Yes. We have some shade under our tent, so come see us. Um, and we're going to kick things off today with our first guest, Sarah Brito. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. Good morning. Hey, Sarah. Sarah is the co-founder and president of the Good Food Media Network, a nonprofit educational organization that produces and publishes the Good Food 100 Restaurants list. And she was formerly on the board of Slow Food, Nation, uh, Slow Food NYC. Yes. And she co-created and launched the Slow Food Snail, Snail of Approval program. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Her work has been featured on the cover of the New York Times Magazine. She wrote a piece called Broccoli's Extreme Makeover, which I also want to know more about that. For sure. And in 2015, she was invited by the U.S. Department of, of State and the James Beard Foundation to speak at the American Chef Rally at Expo Milano in Milan, Italy. So that's just a little bit about Sarah. So, Sarah, to kick things off, I kind of wanted to talk a bit about yesterday's event at Slow Food Nations. They had the Leadership Summit. Can you give us a bit of a recap, like some of your highlights from the summit yesterday? Sure. Well, uh, yesterday's Slow Food Nations Leadership Summit, uh, for me, kicked off with uh, an in-depth session on the Farm Bill and uh, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, uh, both of which are uh, working their way through Congress and the Senate right now. And they had uh, a group of policy experts, including, I think, your next guest, uh, Rihanna from the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. And it was awesome because for those of us that consider ourselves just eaters uh, and don't want to wade through loads and loads of policy, uh, they really broke down what the Farm Bill means in layman terms and what the Magnuson-Stevens uh, Act uh, is about and what's really at stake and why we should care. 
and they gave us helpful tools, uh, including the phone numbers um, of the committees within Congress uh, in some language. Uh, and they gave us 10 minutes at the end to, to call our congressmen and call our senators and call the committee um, and ask for what we wanted. Uh, so it was really action-oriented, which was uh, great to see. Um, but I think uh, beyond that, probably one of the most inspiring things uh, of yesterday's summit was the panel discussion on the future of food uh, that Deb Eschmeyer, uh, who used to be the executive director of Michelle Obama's Let's Move uh, and is now uh, uh, in the private sector, uh, conducted this great, inspiring panel uh, on the future of food. And I think probably one of my favorite takeaways uh, was something that John Eichard, uh, a former professor at the University of Missouri, uh, agricultural economics professor at the University of Missouri, said when he said that the greatest risk to the future of food is human relationships. Um, and I'm happy to elaborate more on that in a bit, uh, but it was just so inspiring to hear from him. I'd never met him before, and uh, I didn't realize that he had uh, written and published six books, and I want to run over to the tattered cover pop-up and <laughs> see if they have any of those six books uh, when we're done here. Yeah. Um, I started off my morning yesterday going to the Conscious Carnivores panel. It was very mm -hmm. cool that everyone could kind of choose their own adventure, mm -hmm. and it was um, the New Food Economy was talking about their work they've been doing on figuring out what is a conscious carnivore, what are some of the choices that we make when it comes to consuming meat, what are our value systems, and what's our hierarchy of choice, which was super interesting. Hannah, what event did you go to? Yeah, I went to one that was, um, I forget the exact term, but it was basically how to empower rural communities, and mm. it was focusing on agriculture um, and kind of how to give farmers the resources that they need to do the, the work that they're doing and compete with industrial agriculture and how that is a tool to, you know, revitalize and strengthen small rural areas where farming is going away and industry is going away. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of really great conversation that went on kind of like how to get the word out, how to distribute your goods, um, how to utilize farmers markets and everything to your best ability. So it was really great. And that panel you mentioned with John Eichard was incredible. That was the highlight of the day. And we're really excited. We're going to have him join us um, at the end of the day today at 4.45, 5 o'clock. So we're really looking forward to talking with him more. Cause. It's interesting that you talk about farmers because, Sarah, you're doing a lot of work right now with farmer relationships. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so actually, just building off of something that I learned yesterday, uh, I often see this bumper sticker uh, around Colorado and Denver. I don't know if you all see it in New York that says, no farmers, no food. Yeah, we've got um, those for sure. And <laughs> yesterday I learned a statistic. You know, it's funny. You kind of know generally these things, but then you hear it in numbers and it, you know, gives you this aha moment. And uh, I think it was Rihanna um, reminded us yesterday that not only no farmers, no food, but that 50 to 70% of all farmers and farm workers in this country are illegal immigrants. And so it's really no immigrants, no food. Um, so I think it's about really knowing our food. And so what we're trying to do with the Good Food 100 restaurants list is shine the spotlight on chefs in restaurants that are really trying to know their food and help their eaters 
uh, their guests in their restaurants know where their food is coming from. And, you know, statistics that I've seen are, you know, upwards of 90% of Americans want to know where their food is coming from, but there's been just historically such a lack of transparency in the food system. And restaurants can only be as transparent as the purveyors, distributors, uh, and producers are willing to be with them. So uh, I'd say in a nutshell, what we're trying to do with our annual restaurant list, uh, which the 2018 list comes out in September, is to um, increase the transparency uh, in the industry so that all of us as eaters can know and feel better about where our food is coming from. That's such a great resource. And that was something that actually came up in the session that I went to yesterday morning was mislabeling and mm -hmm. how, you know, a lot of uh, farmers go to restaurants and they see their farm's name on the menu and they don't sell to that person. And it's actually factory farmed meat that's mislabeled. So having that level, you know, you already, if you care about food, you know you trust your farmer, but having the ability to know that you can trust the restaurant additionally is amazing. And I'm sure, I mean, have you had conversations with, uh, you know, restaurant owners about how, I'm sure they appreciate you getting the word out about their best practices. Yes, because I think, you know, there's so much greenwashing out there and the restaurants that are really putting in the time and energy and effort, and it does take time and energy and effort to cut through the opaqueness in the food system, in the, in the supply chain, they want to get the credit for it because it's expensive. And it, it's expensive, and if eaters don't understand why it's going to cost more, then the restaurants aren't going to be able to continue um, to... Um, buy from those uh, farmers and producers. Is that the main reason that you started working for, on, in Good Food Media Network? And is that was that the main kind of push to recognize people that were doing it the right way? Yes. And to um, sort of in, imply, since we're open to every U.S.-based food service business in America, is eligible to apply to be on our list. And that includes McDonald's. Uh, so it's to imply, uh, hopefully over time, when you don't see certain brands or you don't see certain restaurants on our list and there's no cost to apply, there's no cost to participate, hopefully it will make eaters wonder, well, why aren't they being transparent? What do they have to hide? Because we keep all the data confidential. We simply uh, come up with a rating system. So why wouldn't some of the biggest uh, restaurants uh, and restaurant chains in the country want to participate so that their eaters could feel confident in knowing where they're getting their food from? For someone who wants to apply, they want to you know, put their restaurant in the running for a good food um, for the good food list, um, what's that process like? It is a uh, application process. Uh, our annual application process opens in January, and we give the restaurants about five months. Uh, it doesn't take five months to complete the application, but it is a very detailed application that asks them about how much they spend it within their state, who they buy from within their state, how much they spend within their state, how much they buy within their region, how much they buy domestically within the United States, and how much they're buying internationally as well as who their top purveyors are and uh, how much they're spending with their top purveyors. We've also added this year a number of questions 
uh, around other aspects of how they run their business because transparency isn't just important when it comes to food. I think what this last year and some of the headlines have shown is that eaters want to really know how the whole restaurant operation is being run. And no one, want, no one wants, and it's not going to uh, make people feel good if the food tastes great, but the workers in the back are not being treated fairly. Um, and so I think, um, you know, good food, you know, that saying I think is really true is we don't want our good food to leave a bad taste in our mouth. Mm. So it has to be the whole restaurant operation. Um, so we've added a number of other operational questions as well. Uh, so any restaurant that applies can be on the list. It's uh, their rating is determined by how well they do uh, versus their peers. So it is a peer-to-peer. Uh, it is a peer-to-peer rating system. They're compared to similar type restaurants in their own region. So a fine dining restaurant in Colorado is being compared and evaluated versus another fine dining restaurant in Colorado, whereas a fast casual restaurant in New York is getting compared to other fast casual restaurants in the New York region. Gotcha. That's such a great model because I think it really will help to slowly raise the bar mm-hmm. within each sector, you know, because it, it is, there's like a bell curve. So once someone has a certain level of practices, then everyone else who's their competitor is going to be held to that same standard. So, I mean, have you seen that? Do you think there's like a change in the industry or people like vying for a place on the list and making changes in their business practices? Well, you you spoke directly to the goal, yeah. which is to raise the bar of the industry. And I'd say we're only in our second year, so it's a little too soon to say if we've seen the change in the industry. But what we have seen is that chefs and restaurants that are participating get it. And without me telling them what the objective is, they understand it and they want it. Because if you think about it, just like privately held companies, uh, the Privately held companies are not obligated to communicate any of their numbers to the public, uh, family, family-run businesses. And so this is a voluntary act, and it's similar with restaurants. Most of the restaurants are independently owned, privately owned restaurants, even if they uh, have multiple locations. And they're not obligated to tell us anything. Mm. Um, but uh, they're seeing the value of contributing their data in a safe and confidential way that then is cr- being aggregated and showing them where the bar is in the industry and how they personally can do better themselves. Some of them might be doing better than they thought they were, and some of them who might think they're doing everything really well might realize, wow, maybe we're not doing as much as we thought we were. Since we're talking about transparency and you're speaking a little bit more about the financial side of a restaurant, I know of a few restaurateurs who have been moving to make their do open books with their entire Mm -hmm. staff. How do you feel about that? Do you think more chefs and restaurant owners should do that and to create a more fair work environment for all of their employees? I I love that idea. And uh, as soon as you said that, uh, one of the restaurants that comes to mind, which uh, was not on the 2017 Good Food 100 list, I don't know if they've applied uh, yet for the 2018, is Zingerman's Mm -hmm. uh, out of Ann Arbor. I know that they have an open book uh, approach to management. uh, And I I truly believe in it um, because you you can't practice trans you can't compartmentalize transparency. You can't say, well, we're going to be transparent to our community, but we're not going to be transparent to our staff. So I think you know transparency demands full transparency. I also am a big believer in. Um, 
uh, employee-owned um, companies. And what comes to mind there is uh, probably one of the biggest Colorado success stories. It's not a restaurant, but New Belgium Brewery, which is employee-owned and also practices open books. Because if your employees are your owners, um, then you have to be transparent. So, you know, I think this... Everything that we're talking about reminds me of something else that John Eichard said yesterday that was so inspiring, which is historically and currently we live in a culture and in a society that puts economics above humanity, Mm -hmm. puts economics above uh, human relationships, personal relationships. And when you put economics first, you sacrifice personal relationships and humanity. And what John was really advocating for yesterday is for all of us to say, what kind of humanity, what kind of world do we want to live in? And then ask the economic questions. Okay, how do we make money doing that? How do we sustain ourselves doing that? But when we always lead with the economic question, it's impossible for humanity to thrive. This isn't such a good way to start off the day. I know. Recapping. It's like church. Yes. It's like church at Slow Food Nation. It's food church. <laughs> food church. I like that. So that's, I, my, that's my religion. Yeah, we should trademark that. <laughs> we had this conversation last night, too. Um, so, Sarah, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on um, one thing I mentioned in your bio was that you wrote a piece called Broccoli's Extreme Makeover. Tell tell us a little bit about that. Tell us everything. Sure. Um, So just to clarify, uh, Michael Moss, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning former New York Times uh, writer, is actually the author of the piece. Uh, But my strategy work uh, when I was uh, consulting uh, with an agency in Boulder uh, was featured, uh, was the feature of that story, uh, Broccoli's Extreme Makeover. And... um, that project was really born um, out of, uh, at the time, uh, it was still the Obama administration in uh, November 2013, and Michelle Obama was very active in promoting uh, Let's Move and kids eating more fruits and vegetables. And so uh, a group of people wondered what would happen if you took some of the um, people in the minds behind some of the uh, most popular uh, advertising campaigns, big food advertising campaigns of the day, and uh, took their talent and applied it to the challenge of marketing broccoli. And so uh, it was uh, it was a fictitious project, uh, uh, so to speak. And we didn't actually have a client, uh, but the challenge was: could we make broccoli as attractive as you know? In my background, believe it or not, I'll confess. I used to uh, lead the brand strategy for brands like Domino's Pizza and Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. And at the time, they were going through quite a revitalization. And so I think that's why I was asked to be on this project, which is, you know, if this person can market Domino's Pizza and Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, could she help make broccoli sexy again and get people eating it? Uh, And it was fantastic because, like I said, there was no client, um, but shortly after we did that work and it was featured in the New York Times, a group of students at Yale University decided that they were going to take some of our creative assets that we prepared. They raised money and put up billboards um, near Yale University in New Haven, 
um, and uh, partnered with a local grocery store. And that grocery store saw exponential increases in, in broccoli sales due to their efforts. So there was quite a ripple effect. And after that, the first lady did decide to launch a national uh, campaign uh, called Fruits and Vegetables um, to, to market vegetables to kids. Do you think that experiment or project could be replicated and, and as a way to like increase the profile of maybe certain foods that are like broccoli that don't necessarily have a brand. There's not a company or even like a marketing board necessarily pushing broccoli, but is there some way that you see a group of people kind of coming together in that fashion and promoting healthy foods? I do, um, because one of the things we talked about uh, on that project, and I think it's one of the things that has held back the good food movement and, and many movements, uh, at many social movements, is you often hear advocates and activists talk about how people just need to be educated. Mm. And, uh, you know, if they only knew, they would do differently. And as a branding and marketing person, you know, in my background and in my experience, I couldn't agree or couldn't disagree more <laughs> with that statement, uh, which is it's not about, it's not just about education. It's about creating desire yes. and creating demand. And I think that we're sitting here next to the taste marketplace at Slow Food Nations and you know, yes, people are going to be walking through that taste marketplace, learning and getting educated about different products. But the reason it's called the taste marketplace and not the education marketplace is because they're going to be learning through tasting. And that taste experience is going to create the desire that's going to like open up people's palates and people's minds and people's hearts to want to eat differently, to choose a new product. And so I think we just have to remember that it's desire that happens first, and then it opens our minds to like learning or changing our perspective uh, on things first. So we have to find a way to inspire people, to inspire people, uh, and not just to educate people. Oh, I love that. Because I yeah. think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that food is a beautiful sensory experience. So it's the way it looks, the way it tastes and then it's also you know meeting the people behind it that really bring it to life so I love that I think that's like the perfect approach to making like actual meaningful change um change what people want to eat on a yeah, day-to-day basis. Yeah, you got to sink your teeth into it. Yeah. yeah, I think that's one of the beautiful things about Slow Food that Carlo Petrini, the founder of Slow Food, um, always speaks to and, you know, that who, I, I mean, it sounds much better when it's coming uh, through someone with an Italian accent uh, and uh, Massimo Batura, chef Massimo Batura, uh, uh, who's also here at Slow Food Nations, uh, also says this so beautifully. Um, and much better in an Italian accent about the beauty and the pleasures of food. And, you know, sometimes I think the Italians and slow foodies get criticized for talking about beauty and pleasure um, as if, you know, it's a very American thing to have it, beauty and pleasure and seriousness be in either, in either or. Yeah. Uh, it does not need to be, and I think that's what attracted me to the slow food movement uh, in the late 90s. Uh, because I've been involved in it in the U.S. from the beginning, is this integration of, you know, it can be both beautiful and pleasurable and important uh, and serious. 
Yes. So I want to also ask you about the rest of the events you're participating in at Slow Food this weekend. So take us through your schedule. Sure. Um, so I'm here not only because I now live in beautiful Colorado, um, but because I always want to come out and support the Good Food 100 restaurants that are around the country that have uh, descended on Denver. So I'm trying to do things uh, where chefs that are part of the Good Food 100, like Chef Rick Bayless of Frontera Grill and Topolabombo and Choco in Chicago. So I'll be um, seeing him uh, this afternoon at the Global Street Food Social. Uh, which is happening here on Larimer Square. Um, I'm also, of course, supporting all of the Colorado chefs that are supporting Slow Food Nations. Uh, I was at the Colorado Fair event last night, um, and we'll be hosting a, a, what we're calling a farmer's market after party uh, from 3 to 5 today, right uh, over here at Chef Jen Jasinski's Bistro Vendome. And I'm really excited about that because the Denver Union Station Farmer's Market is happening just down the street until 2, and then we've invited all of the farmers from the farmer's market to come and be with our chefs, um, which... To me, I'm really excited about, because I don't know about you guys, but when you go to these food conferences, sometimes um, we as activists and advocates get criticized that it's a bunch of intellectuals at food conferences, and sometimes there's often very few, if any, farmers or food producers that are there. And so I'm super excited to see lots of people in their overalls from the farmer's market with dirt under their fingers at our little cocktail reception uh, this afternoon. And then, of course, the finale to Slow Food, the food waste uh, dinner uh, Sunday night uh, was definitely a highlight for me last year. And I'm excited to see um, how that goes uh, this year as well. That's a really awesome event as part of the festival. It's Chef Steven Satterfield and a few other people are going to be making a dinner with all of the leftover food so that we prevent food waste. And he did it last year. He's doing it again this year. I saw him yesterday and he, I said, how's it going? What do you, you know, what have you been up to so far? He's like, I mean, nothing yet. I can't really get it, do anything until I get here. So it's um, always this kind of a surprise, always, I think, delightful to a lot of people. And it's a really, really cool dinner. Yes, and just a shout out, I forgot to mention that Chef Steven Satterfield of Miller Union in Atlanta is also a Good Food 100 restaurant. Yes, he is. Um, Great. Well, I think that's all the questions we have for you, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, and um, we will be back shortly. We want to thank our sponsors um, for helping make our uh, slow food coverage possible. Hearst Ranch, the Julia Child Foundation, and Julie Schaefer. Uh, And we'll be back in a few minutes with more interviews. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.